John chapter 10, we're going to look at Christ, Jesus Christ the door. I'm going to read 1 to 18. We're only going to, this morning and this afternoon, we're only going to look at um, the first six verses. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and, they, and leads them out. And he brings out his own sheep. He goes before them, and they follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. <coughs> Jesus used this illustration. The old King James says parable. Uh, it's not the word for parable, it's a different word. We'll get into that in a moment. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and will go out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he is he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves and flee, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As my father knows me, even so I know the father, and lay my life down for the sheep. And other sheep I have, I have, which are not of this fold. Them I must also bring. He's talking about the Gentiles now. And they will hear my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my father loves me, because I lay my life down, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. We'll stop there. In John chapter 10, we have the last recorded public address of Jesus in the fourth gospel. <clears throat> the general heading of this section is the Good Shepherd. In this address, we have at least four sections. Number one verses 1 through 5, and of course 6 is part of that, where it explains, where John explains the people didn't understand this, the Pharisees didn't under, and the, their followers didn't understand. We have the true shepherd contrasted with the false. False entrance versus true entrance, and of course false shepherd versus true shepherd. Uh, false shepherds versus true shepherds. This includes the true shepherd's loving sacrificial leadership of the true sheep, who hear and follow him, who refuse to follow false shepherds. In verse 6, we are told the people did not understand this illustration. Number 2, Christ compares himself to a door or gate in verses 7 to 10 and continues to compare himself to, um, to uh, contrast himself to the false shepherds. He's the true shepherd, they're the false shepherds. The ultimate purpose of the true shepherd is is contrasted to the faults in verse 10. Number three, Jesus contrasts himself as the good shepherd against unlawful hirelings. 
Christ focuses on his death or ultimate sacrifice for the sheep. And he also notes that the true sheep's attitude toward himself and the Father's will and love of his mission. And then number four, we are told the response of the crowds in verses 19 to 21. These three illustrations, or uh, allegories, on the surface appear very simple. That's what's so unique about John. John's one of those books where you read it and you go, well, that's very, very simple, yet it's very profound. Yet they are somewhat complex in the way Jesus switches his use of metaphors and mixes the literal with the symbolic. He will present himself as the shepherd, but also as the door of the sheepfold. He contrasts himself with thieves or robbers, and then a little later with hirelings. This section of scripture is exceptionally rich and comforting to true believers. When we examine it in detail, there are a number of introductory uh, matters to consider. So let's look at some introductory things to note. First, and this is very important, the context of the passage uh, is found in John 9 where the Pharisees abuse their power. Uh, Jesus heals a blind man. They give his parents a hard time. They're totally afraid of the Pharisees. And then they end up excommunicating the blind man who was healed. Our Lord will rebuke the Pharisees saying, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see. Therefore your sin remains. Verse 41. And, and whenever you have in, in Scripture, when you have verily, verily, or truly, truly, or most assuredly, I say to you, however it's translated, it's basically, in Greek, it's amen, amen. That never just pops out of nowhere. That, that is fought, There's something going on, and that Jesus is going to give teaching that applies to what just happened. And that's what we have here. This verse, chapter 10, he's explaining... Uh, what happened in verse uh, in chapter nine, and why the Pharisees are false shepherds, and he's the true shepherd. The good shepherd narrative is continued in John ten twenty six to twenty eight, which occurs. This is interesting. In December, two months later, at the feast of dedication, John ten twenty two. So, so he's teaching on this. This is such an important topic. He's teaching on this. Then the narrative ends, and then he picks up on the same theme two months later and continues it for a while longer. But that just keep that in mind. That, that's not part of this discourse. It's in a separate uh, continuance. This shows us the importance of this narrative to John and the Holy Spirit. And what he says in chapter uh, 1022 and following and so forth is, is not a whole discourse. It's just the, the theme continues. Second, this allegory or use of symbolism is rooted in the Old Testament background of this topic. And this is very important, and I'm going to spend some time on this. If the Pharisees really knew the Word of God, they would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about, but they obviously did not or were blind. In Psalm 23, we read, The Lord is my shepherd, verse 1. The psalm goes on to speak of God's love and care for his people. Similarly, and I'm not covering every passage, just I'm going to be quick. Psalm 80, verse 1, says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. Stir up your strength and come and save us. Psalm 95, 7, For he is our God, 
and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. You notice these are all talking about God, or Yahweh. Psalm 100 verse 3 reads, Know that the Lord, Yahweh, he is God. It is he who has made us, not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And then Isaiah 40, 10 to 11. Behold, the Lord God, and this is not Yahweh God, this is Adonai God, shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his arm is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. Okay, that's a prophecy about Jesus Christ, and you know Isaiah, the first part of Isaiah, which is dark and has all these prophecies of judgment, the dividing line in the book of Isaiah is chapter 40, where now we have the Messiah and his wonderful work introduced. And then Ezekiel 34, 1-24 is especially important. Listen carefully to this. And this will also apply to Christ. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who are sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought that which was lost. But with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey, and my flock became food for every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherd search for my flock. But the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will recall my flock at my hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep, and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. I will gather my flock with their, from their mouths, that they shall no longer be food for them. Thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples <coughs> and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel in the valleys and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture and their fold shall be on the high mountain of Israel. There shall be, and then they shall lie down in a good field and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek that which was lost, and bring back what was driven away. Bring up the broken, bind up the broken, and strengthen that which was sick. I will destroy the fat and the strong, and feed them in judgment. And as for you, O my flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will judge between the sheep and the, and the, sheep, and between the rams and the goats. It is too little for you to have eaten up the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pasture, and to have drunk of the clear waters, 
that you must foul the residue with your feet. But as for my flock, they eat what you have trampled with your feet, and they drink what you have fouled with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep, because you have pushed with side and shoulder, butted all the weak ones with your horns, and scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. And who is the shepherd? My servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. This is obviously a prophecy of Jesus Christ. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So here, many passages we saw, Yahweh's the shepherd, with a capital S. Obviously, we see rebukes against the teachers of Israel, the rabbis of Israel, who are the leaders of Israel, who are uh, leading the people into idolatry and gross sin and causing them to be scattered among the nations. Jeremiah 23, verse 1, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. And then uh, in verses 2 to, uh, that's 23, 1, in verses 2 to 6, there's a prophecy about the coming of Christ and true shepherds. Zechariah 11, 17, Woe to the worthless shepherd who leads the flock. So Jesus, according to prophecy, will be the one great shepherd, not only the reunited remnant, that is Israel and Judah, he gathers the elect out of Israel, national Israel, Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 11, but also his sheep within all nations of the earth, the Gentiles. So that's the Old Testament background of this verse. I, I've tried to be brief. But you can see there's a ton of background on this teaching in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when the term shepherd is not used of religious leaders, the religious leaders of the people, it is used of Yahweh, who is the shepherd of Israel, and of individual believers. True believers are God's sheep. In the Old Testament passages, that most clearly corresponds to our text is Ezekiel 34, where the false shepherds of Israel are contrasted with my servant David, which is a reference to the Messiah. So if they had known Ezekiel 34 and understood it was a messianic prophecy speaking about David, David has been dead for a long time, for centuries, they would have known that Jesus was speaking about them. The false teachers did not protect the sheep, but rather serve their own economic interests. They are responsible for the ravaging of Israel by the surrounding nations, for they did not feed the sheep, that is, they did not preach the truth. In this passage, there is a focus on seeking out the true sheep, the remnant, or the individually elect among national Israel, as well as eschatological judgment between sheep and sheep, rams and goats. And it climaxes on the David to come, the true shepherd, the one shepherd who will feed and take care of the true sheep. So always remember Ezekiel 34 when you read John chapter 10. Now, the New Testament follows the Old Test these Old Testament themes. Jesus declared that he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and exhibited himself as the good shepherd, Luke 15, 1-7, and of course our text. In Mark's Gospel, we read that Jesus had compassion on the crowds because they, quote, they were like sheep not having a shepherd. For he began to teach them many things. 
That's Mark 6, 34. Now, there are sheep without a shepherd, although these people went to synagogue. These people had religious teachers, yet they're sheep without a shepherd. Before the crucifixion, Jesus quotes Isaiah's prophecy about the suffering servant, saying, this is um, found in Mark 14.27. All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And then in Matthew 18, Christ speaks of the parable of the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep in order to search out the wilderness for the one lost sheep. See verse 12 and following, and also Luke 15, 3-7. Christ does not, will not allow even one of his sheep to perish. He'll go search out and find that sheep and rescue that sheep. And then the author of Hebrews calls Jesus the great shepherd, 1320. Peter calls Jesus the chief shepherd, 1 Peter 5.4. And John's gospel contains more details about this theme and clearly contrasts Jesus as the true shepherd against the scribes and the Pharisees. Third, the discourse about the Good Shepherd is not a parable. The Old King James, in verse 6 of chapter 10, says the people did not understand this parable. And the word is a different word than parable. Better translated, allegory. The New King James calls it an illustration. It's an allegory or a teaching through analogy. The technical term is peroimia. Peroimia, which refers to a figurative saying. The Gospel of John does not contain any parables. It's very interesting. The three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have lots of parables. <coughs> the point of an allegory is to see the main idea or ideas and the parallels of meaning in the text. In this allegory, the terms used to convey spiritual truths are door, fold, shepherd, flock, as well as thief, robber, stranger, and hireling. When interpreters go beyond the simple allegory or analogy in the text and seek hidden meanings in every detail, no matter how insignificant, they pervert the, pervert the point of the passage. And, and they'll say many good things. They might have good applications. But we have to be careful to keep it real simple and just focus on the simple meaning in the text. And then fourth, our Lord places a special importance on this teaching by his introductory formula, truly, truly, literally, amen, amen. Every word spoken by Jesus is absolutely true. But when he himself points to that fact, it shows that he attaches a special importance to this teaching. And like I said earlier, it, it follows chapter 9 and his rebuke of the Pharisees, telling them they're, they're blind. They've mistreated this poor man and his family. <clears throat> this teaching is contrary to the Jewish church and leadership at that time. Yet Jesus tells the crowd that what he is saying is of utmost importance. Amen, amen. Truly, truly. Verily, verily. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. Now we come to the text itself. Verse 1, Christ the door. Most assuredly I say to you, he... He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. <clears throat> Jesus begins with an allegory based upon sheep herding, as it was commonly done in Israel at that time. 
And this picture would be well known to all Jews. It was an agricultural society. Sheep herding was done all over the land. <clears throat> Very agricultural. There were basically two kinds of sheepfolds used at that time. <clears throat> One was extremely simple, kind of an ad hoc arrangement where a guy would collect rocks, make a circle out of rocks, made of stones, with a very narrow door, and the shepherd would lay at night at the entrance of the fold. So if something tried to sneak in, it would disturb him, and he could stop the predators. And usually him just laying there would keep predators away. Predators don't like human beings. They don't. He doesn't want predators to sneak into the fold, the enclosure to grab a young sheep. And this is probably what he had in mind when he said he's the door of the sheep in verse 7. Another kind of sheepfold was larger and more substantial. It was found in towns and villages and consisted of a room or a fenced enclosure that had a regular door or gate. In areas with a lot of wild animals, the fence, according to my research, would be 10 to 12 feet tall. And remember, you read the Old Testament, they had wolves, they had bears. And early, in the early days, they had lions, and, you know, back in the days of David. Uh, probably by this time, there weren't lions, but it's amazing. If you look at Israel and its ancient Israel, there were woods all over the place. It was much, it was better watered and more wooded. Such enclosures were used in bad weather and could hold more than one man's herd. A porter would shut the gate, he's, a, he's the hired person, and would watch over the sheep while the owners would return home or take care of business. <laughs> and these things were pretty large, and they would take more than one flock. They could take more than one flock. So when the guy came back to get his sheep, how did you separate the sheep from the sheep? They didn't brand them like we do cows today. What do they do? Well, the sheep recognized their voice, the voice of their their shepherd. And uh, I read a lot of things, obviously I read a lot of stuff about this, and they, they would recognize the voice and they would come out one by one and they would follow him. And he would walk and they would literally follow him. And they'd follow his voice. They knew him. And that's how they separated the sheep from the sheep. That's why they could have more than one flock altogether. When the guy came, he would collect his sheep and they would recognize his voice. They would follow his voice. Of course, that's true of a lot of animals. The second more substantial kind of sheepfold is what is in mind in these first verses. The picture is a sheepfold, a fenced enclosure, where the sheep are kept at night. Verse 1 shows us that those who do not seek to go in by the door, but by some nefarious other way, an illegitimate way, the contrast is between those who seek to crawl over the wall, this proves their purpose is not for the good care or nurture of the sheep, but for some unlawful evil purpose. Who's sneaking over the wall? Well, it's going to be a thief or a robber. The shepherd's not going to do that. He's going to go to the door, and he's going to op the door's going to be open, he's going to call a sheep by name. He's going to call him, they're going to recognize his voice and follow him. <coughs> The shepherd of the sheep who enters by the door is found in verse 2. Every Jew would know that someone climbing over the wall or fence would be a thief. The shepherd would naturally enter by the door. 
A thief steals what does not belong to him and sometimes even resorts to violence to do so. A thief is a selfish, unloving, unlawful, self-centered, and so, and he's thoroughly morally corrupt. A robber is a, is a thief who does violence. It's more of a, it's a stronger word. The Greek word for thief implies deception, fraud, and dishonesty. The word robber adds the element of force, coercion, and violence. False teachers use deception in their doctrines in that their doctrines are not based on scripture but flow from human invention. Arians, Papists, Arminians, Federal Visionists, cult leaders are all experts at equivocation and subtle deception. And I mean, if you go back and you read the, the church councils and things that dealt with the Arians, how, how clever they were in lying and equivocating. Same with the Federal Visionists. The Federal Visionists, oh, we're just talking about you know, sanctification, we're not talking about justification. But then you read their writings and they are talking about justification. Then they support their errors and heresies with ecclesiastical coercion. That is a humanistic, subjective, arbitrary use of church power. Corrupt Presbyterians, for example, will go into executive session. Or they do their dirty, corrupt work in the shadows because they cannot defend their decisions based on Scripture. And sad to say, I've seen it a lot. I saw it a lot in the RPCNA, where they, you know, they knew they couldn't defend something, so they just acted like bureaucrats and did things and got together and decided, this is what we're going to do. No defense from Scripture, no pastoral oversight. If somebody's doing something wrong and they're truly violating Scripture, then your job is to show them where they're doing, why they're doing something wrong based on Scripture and tell them they need to repent, not have some bureaucrat just get rid of them. <clears throat> They also threaten biblical teachers with contumacy and discipline if they contradict their human corruptions. And we saw that recently in this, the RPCNA Presbytery of the Midwest, where a guy wrote an article, an RP pastor wrote an article where he said, we need to use wine, and if we're not using wine, it's unbiblical, it's a sin. And he's right. It's unbiblical, it's not authorized, it's a sin. And they basically said, you have a choice. Keep teaching that or get rid of it or we will defrock you. And they don't have that authority. The authority of a pastor or elder resides solely in applying Scripture to each situation. They don't have the authority to go beyond what the Scripture teaches. If they can't prove that Christ want, hates wine and wants us to use grape juice, if they can't prove that, then they need to shut their mouths and submit to Scripture. Now, due to the context, it is clear that Jesus is comparing the scribes and Pharisees to thieves or robbers. They have used unlawful means to gain mastery over the sheep, the visible church of the people of Israel, in order to exalt themselves and make economic gains. In the context of 922 and following, <clears throat> we see the Jewish leaders threaten the blind man's, uh, healed blind man's parents, they threaten him with excommunication if they do not submit to their unbiblical theology regarding Jesus. They say all kinds of terrible things about Jesus, and they say, you have to submit to what we say. And they're using coercion. Their use of authority is arbitrary, humanistic, selfish, self-centered, and tyrannical. 
Okay, a biblical elder, a biblical pastor should never be afraid when somebody says, hey, can you prove that from scripture? What is the, what is your authority for doing this? Why do we do this? What's the authority behind this? Can you prove it from scripture? That should never offend anybody. Yet people get offended by that because they're acting like humanists. Their presuppositions cause them to be very hostile to Jesus and they seek control over the sheep and they work hard to turn them away from Christ by using intimidation. They use their ecclesiastical authority not for truth or to submit to Scripture or to help the people of Israel follow Christ, but rather to keep the sheep in fear, blindness, and bondage. They want to keep the sheep away from their Savior, away from Christ. So that's pretty bad, very bad. The door in verses 1 and 2 simply represents the lawful or legitimate entrance. Jesus will identify himself as the door of the sheep in verse 7. Any teacher of religion who does not have faith in Christ and who does not make Jesus the axis or foundation of true religion is unfit for office and dangerous for the sheep. Instead of being a shepherd who takes care of the sheep with nourishing food and loving care, he is no better than a thief and a robber. Instead of preaching the words of life, he preaches lies of the devil that bring death. The Pharisees and all those who act like them in history are false shepherds who do incredible harm to the people of God they are supposed to be helping. False shepherds preaching lies. <clears throat> now, because allegories and mixed metaphors are liable to mistaken views and speculations, there are a number of different views as to what door means in verses 1 and 2. Some view the door, Tholek and Heinstenberg, I have a, a two-volume commentary by Heinstenberg, it's excellent, uh, view it as a proper divine call to office. Well, this view is unnatural in force. Nobody listening to this would come to that conclusion. Another view held by Chrysostom, Euthymius, Tholaktek, and Maldonatus, these are all ancient church fathers, is that the door represents the scriptures. In other words, if one's view is not based solely on the scriptures, then great harm will come to the flock. Now, this is true as an application, obviously. That's a very good application. But there's nothing in the text that requires that view. Another view is that the, uh, in the first few verses, uh, door simply means the lawful way of entrance for shepherds. And we should not go beyond the simple analogy. Christ will call himself the door later, but here that's not the focus. Here the focus is on legitimate entrance. You know, because you'd have Christ being uh, the, the shepherd and the door at the same time. So people say, it's just, you know, let, don't take it too far. Frederick Louis Godet has a unique, interesting view. He writes, <coughs> we not, need not allow ourselves to be turned aside from this altogether natural sense of the figure. As it results from the contrast between verses 1 and 2, by the declaration of Jesus in verse 7, I am the door. That verse is not the explanation of the present parable in which different, although uh, analogies, figures, and free, are freely employed in the service of an altogether different idea. The door represents the messianic office divinely instituted and forming the legitimate entrance into the theocracy prepared for its normal leader, the shepherd, that is to say, the Messiah. 
I just wanted to read that because I like that view, even though I'm not sure if it's true. But uh, like I said, all these different views of what the door represents in these early verses, obviously later it's clearly Christ. Um, they're all good applications. But the focus is on legitimate entrance. The best view, which is the majority view, is that the door is Christ. The door of the sheepfold, verse 1, the door of the true sheep, verse 7, the door of salvation, verse 9, is Christ. And this view is supported by the previous chapter, where healed, the healed blind man was excommunicated for confessing his faith in Jesus, both as healer and savior. <clears throat> as the true sheep, the healed man responded to the voice of the shepherd. To enter by Christ includes faith in the gospel and the word of God, so this view is inclusive of the interpretation that the door is scripture. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him, John 14, 6. Augustine, now that's the majority view. That's the view of a bunch of people, like Calvin and, and uh, Matthew Henry and a bunch of people. Matthew Poole. Uh, Augustine's comments on this verse are interesting. He writes this, quote, There are many who, according to the custom of this life, are called good people, good men, good women, innocent and observers, as it were, of what is commanded in the law that is at least outwardly, paying respect to their parents, abstaining from adultery, doing no murder, committing no theft, giving no false witness against anyone, and observing all else that the law requires, yet are not Christians. Pagans may say then, we live well. If they enter not by the door, what good will that do to them? Whereof they boast. And then in verse 2, we have the opposite teaching of verse 1. So that's verse 1. In verse 2, we have the opposite teaching. The person who enters the sheepfold by the one proper true entrance, the door, is a true shepherd of the sheep. <clears throat> Doesn't try to climb over the wall, goes through the door. <clears throat> Although later Jesus will present himself as the good shepherd, verse 14, in verse 2, there is no definite, definite article before shepherd, and all true teachers, pastors, or elders of the sheep are in mind although the focus of the passage is on Christ, obviously. Unlike the Pharisees and all false shepherds, these shepherds enter through Christ, live for Christ, and they glorify Christ in their teaching. Obviously, if someone does not believe in Christ and preach the true gospel of pure grace, he cannot be a genuine or good shepherd. The sheepfold is the visible church of the Old Covenant Israel. Old Covenant Israel. It cannot be heaven, for thieves and robbers do not climb over the fence to enter heaven. It does not refer to the invisible church, for Jesus does not lead his sheep out of the true church. And it does not even refer to the post-resurrection new covenant visible church in this context, for the Pharisees are the false shepherds, and those who hear and follow the shepherd are the elect in Israel, who follow Jesus out of apostate Judaism. <clears throat> Jesus, the good shepherd, came to gather his sheep within the Jewish visible church. The, shepherd, the Pharisees want to keep the people in satanic bondage and fleece them of their money. After the resurrection, the evangelists and apostles will continue the work of gathering true Israel out of national Israel before the national judgment in A.D. 67 to 70. Matthew 3, chapter 24, and this is before uh, Jesus discusses the second coming. This is talking about the judgment of Israel. He says that God will send messengers 
It's translated angels in almost all versions, but the word could also be translated messengers. God will send messengers to gather the elect from the four corners of the wind. Uh, and the reference there in context, he's referring to really the apostles and the, the evangelists who gather Israel before the day of judgment, their day of judgment in AD 70. The religious leaders of Israel were trying to keep the people of Israel in darkness through false teaching, intimidation, and threats of excommunication. Instead of Christ, they preached salvation by works. Instead of biblical discipline, they practiced ecclesiastical tyranny and humanism. The bondage of popery and corrupt prelacy is a continuation of their philosophy. This section of scripture applies to all of church history and that false shepherds continue. And true shepherds exist as well. But the specific teaching applies directly to what was happening in John chapter 9 and the great opposition to the church and all true believers we find in all the Gospels in the book of Acts. The focus is on the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, the false teachers of Israel. Does it apply throughout church history? Absolutely. But that's the focus. It was necessary for Jesus to strongly rebuke the Pharisees publicly because they were opposing his doctrine of the gospel and were doing everything within their power to keep the sheep from the true good shepherd. It is important that we learn that strong biblical attacks against false teachers are necessary to protect the sheep. We live in a very anti-doctrine anti-dogmatic age where almost everything under the sun is tolerated in the name of Christian love and unity. But our text teaches us that nothing is more offensive to Jesus as a false teacher or a false prophet or a false shepherd within his church or what calls itself the Christian church. He hates it and he strongly preached against it. Nothing ought to be more hated and dreaded in the church than false teachers. False teachers turn the Roman Catholic Church into a synagogue of Satan. False Arminian teachers have made evangelicalism an enemy of true evangelicalism. False teachers have done more harm to professing Christians in history than the persecutions of Rome, the Jews, and the Muslims combined. The very strong language of great men like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and Knox against Roman Catholic teachers and apologists is viewed with embarrassment by many professing Christian scholars today. But the truth is, these men were imitating Christ. These great reformers were showing us what it means to love and protect the sheep. Calvin is extremely strong. He was debating a Roman Catholic apologist and he said, basically told him, I'm paraphrasing, you've been in the Pope's urinal so long you smell like piss. <laughs> he says that in a, in a public debate. <clears throat> John Calvin's word on this text are worth noting. He writes, This warning has been highly useful in all ages, and in the present day it is especially necessary. No plague is more destructive to the church than when wolves ravage under the garb of shepherds. We know also how grievous an offense it is when bastard or degenerate Israelites pretend to be the sons of the church and in this pretense insult believers. 
But in the present day, there is nothing by which weak and ignorant persons are more alarmed than when they see the sanctuary of God occupied by the greatest enemies of the church. For it is not easy to make them understand that it is the doctrine of Christ which the shepherds of the church so fiercely resist. Besides, as the greater part of men are led into various errors by false doctrines, while the views and expectations of each person are directed to others, scarcely any person permits himself to be conducted into the right path. We must therefore, above all things, guard against being deceived by pretended shepherds or counterfeit sheep. If we do not choose of our own accord to expose ourselves to wolves and thieves, Christ compares himself to a door, because there is no other entrance into the church but by himself. Hence it follows that they alone are good shepherds, who lead men straight to Christ, and that they are truly gathered into the fold of Christ, so as to belong to his flock, who devote themselves to Christ alone. And we'll stop there. That's the uh, commentary in the Gospel according to John. We'll take a break. I have another short one on this. I know I got too much for one, but not quite enough for two long ones. But um, and the bulk of my application is coming in the second sermon, so you've got to really listen to the next sermon. But I hope you see how important this is. <clears throat> Who has done more damage to the church? Satan's tactic was twofold. One was to try to kill Christians and persecute them out of existence. And that didn't really work so well because Christians, it just separated the wheat from the chaff and you had really dedicated Christians working hard. So his next tactic, or his coordinate tactic, was to put false shepherds in the church who preached lies and heresies. And that was very effective. By the 4th century, the church was teaching all sorts of horrible things. Praying to the saints, bowing to statues, celebrating pagan holy days, you know, in Christian guise. The church had become very corrupt, and by the 9th or 10th century, the Roman Catholic Church was really very apostate. And then, of course, the Counter-Reformation after Luther and Calvin and Knox, the Counter-Reformation, they took their heresies and they took their hatred of the true religion and they put it in the Council of Trent. And truly, they are a synagogue of Satan. So let us learn from these words. We'll take a little break, we'll come back, and then I got the best is yet to come, believe me. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you uh, for Jesus' teaching. He does not pull punches. He does not equivocate. He's very clear. So help us, Lord, that we would all seek teachers who exalt Jesus Christ and teach true sovereign grace and exalt your name protect your sheep and just go by what the scriptures teach and don't go beyond it <clears throat> don't add to it or detract from it in jesus name amen